springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Welcome to Fair Game, the podcast with a firm focus on Irish sportswomen, coming to you on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Emily Glenn. And I'm Shauna Cook. And this episode, we're going to be meeting one of the true talents of Irish sport. But before we do that, just a quick reminder of where you can find us. Check out headstuff.org for the full archive of episodes. And Fair Game is also available to subscribe on iTunes, Android, Stitcher and Spotify. If you enjoy the podcast, then do us a favour and rate and review it on your app of choice. Sharing episode links on Twitter, Facebook and Insta also helps us spread the word. So send it on to friends, family and clubmates who you think might enjoy. And follow us on Twitter at FairGameCast to stay up to speed on everything happening in women's sport on and off the field. Joining us in Fair Game Hot Seat today is a woman who's been a regular on the international stage since she was just 13 years old. Three Olympic tournaments later and she's a fully-fledged Olympian with a bronze medal medal even to prove it. She's a world champion who couldn't take a bath during the European Championship in Dublin last year but she was breaking records and she came away with a gold medal for her performance in the 100 metre breaststroke and a bronze in the women's 200 metre medley too. This woman has got some serious stories to share. We are delighted to welcome Ireland's own Ellen Keane to the Fair Game Hot Seat. Hey Ellen. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm excited. Should be fun. Yeah. Although you said I had some exciting stories to tell you. <laughs> I don't know, do I? It's all, swimming's quite a very boring sport, so I don't know, we'll see. Well, we're going to have 45 minutes where you tell us all about it. <laughs> and then you look at the ground, and then you tumble, and then you look at the ground again. And you keep kicking your legs. So, Ellen, it was the third day of the Euro Paris Women Championships in the National Aquatic Centre in Dublin. You already had a bronze medal from the 200 metre individual medley final two days previously but you're in front of a home crowd that were raising the roof take us back to that evening what was going through your mind um it was actually the last day um I had a few uh races before before that yeah and then the Friday was the 200 IM and I I was just so delighted to it was day five that I won my first medal and the crowd had come day morning and evening every day and kept waiting for something and um like we had a few like I came fourth twice in my first two races so to finally be able to give them what they've been waiting for was just such a special moment and then um I think that gave me a lot more confidence for the Sunday which was my 100 meter breaststroke and it was just so weird um because it's my home pool it's where I train every day and there were people there who I always see when I'm away competing um, and they're in my home pool and I was like go away (laughs) this is my place (laughs) Um, but yeah no it's just kind of like a bit of a blur at the moment it it seems like a dream Um, when I I wasn't actually nervous beforehand and I don't think I actually realized how nervous I was Uh, but when I went into the call room um, for the final I was I was really relaxed I was just kind of having a bit of fun with the guys in the call room because obviously I, I've raced with them for years so I, I'd know a lot of people and we were all just kind of relaxed having a bit of a laugh and then 
it was time to go out and I always wear my headphones because the crowd can be manic and I try and just kind of get in my zone and try and stay focused and I was shaking uncontrollably and I, I was like why am I shaking so much like I in my head I knew I was seated first I knew that the chance of me winning the gold was um very high and uh, but there's a rule for women if you're on the block and you rock on the block you get disqualified and here was me uncontrollably shaking so I was like oh my god I really need to get this under control before I'm on the block and uh, as soon as I was actually on the block and the starter said take your marks go I was like off like a shot because as soon as he said take your marks I was like stay still and then go I was like okay now you can move <laughs> Um, and my coach actually uh, made a joke about how it's the fastest 25 meters he's ever seen me do, um, which which was probably setting me up for a good race. And uh, yeah, I took took the race out ahead of everyone and turned ahead of everyone. And the last 25 meters, because in breaststroke, I think breaststroke is the only stroke that you can actually hear the crowd because you're coming up to breathe. And uh, every time I came up to breathe, I heard the crowd cheering and that kind of pushed me on a lot more. And it was so... It was so bizarre because I'd never actually experienced anything like that. Of course, I've been to to three Paralympic Games before, but you're not really aware that the crowd are specifically cheering for you. And like I knew like uh, the whole NAC was just my family, basically. (laughs) And uh, I knew they were all cheering for me. So it was just kind of pushing me forward and then hitting the wall and seeing that I'd come first and seeing the reaction from the crowd was just a very special moment. That's already a deadly story. So we're already <laughs> off to a pretty good start. Um, yeah, but then it, it got it got pretty um, cool afterwards because there's uh, obviously all the volunteers were Irish. Well, the majority of them were Irish, and then uh, I went into the kind of where the team lounge was, where all the other countries were. And as soon as I walked in, everyone started cheering, and I was like, it was like there was no other races going on that day. Like no other countries were there. Even all the other countries were cheering because it was Ireland's. Uh, only gold medal and it was their first gold medal and uh, I think every other country was just delighted that like we got a gold medal in our home in our home pool in our home country and uh, then I got brought out for the medal presentation and uh, I kind of got a little bit disappointed because I knew it was a home championship and that obviously the Irish were organising the medal presentation and I saw who was going to be giving out the medals and I got a bit disappointed because I was like oh I thought they'd like do something special <laughs> or something I thought because um, uh, Allianz were the main sponsor I'm quite close with uh, Damien from Allianz who is responsible for all the sponsorships so I was like oh maybe he would do it but no he wasn't there and then uh, when we actually walked around the corner to the podium my coach is there in his suit and I was like ah they filled me (laughs) and uh, yeah it was really special that he was presenting me my medal and he told me afterwards that um, there's like he got told you're not allowed you're only allowed to shake the athlete's hand and you're not allowed to go in to embrace unless the athlete does it because uh, he gave me my medal and then he was like putting out his hand to shake my hand and I was like what are you doing and I pulled him in closer for a hug so uh, I understood afterwards when he told me that story why I was so hesitant for the hug Gotcha Um, You had the European uh, Championships in Dublin and it was the first time that the European Championships have ever been held in Dublin? Yeah, so it was the first time a para event has ever actually happened in Dublin and for it to be swimming was quite a special thing. So when I found out that it it was actually happening, I kind of knew for a while that it could happen. Um, I kind of just threw myself in 
to the deep end with kind of publicizing it and trying to get as many people aware of it as possible. And I think the ad that Alliance did, everyone was like, yeah. I recognize you from somewhere. And I'm like, I'm on the Alliance ad. And they're like, oh, yeah, what's that about? And I'm like, it's about swimming. When it comes to serious support, Alliance have really put their money where the mouth is. Like they were not shy about, you know, promoing that, that I know yeah great. they got the side of the NAC was just a picture of me like they got a blown up picture of me on the side of the NAC and I kind of just had to um like box that off like this is one thing that I'm doing but obviously I'm there to compete um so I I did kind of have them in two separate compartments in my head so that when I was actually racing it wasn't affecting me mm. the amount of support that was there specifically for me um or the amount that everyone knew about me um because I kind of see like for me swimming and competing is very personal like I want I won a gold medal but I was actually disappointed because I didn't swim as fast as I wanted to I didn't get a PB um so I was disappointed with that because personally I want to see myself improve all the time um, but to be able to do that for everyone else was really special. You, uh, your 2018 was pretty busy. You also had the World Series in America so it wasn't just the European Championships on home soil it was the, the World Series too and you took home some medals from that as well and kind of looking back on your career trajectory um, to date 2018 might just have been your most successful year outside of an Olympic circle cycle like yeah. when you look back on it what do you kind of attribute that change in tempo to um I think it's just after Rio I kind of had a bit more confidence going forward um but then in 2017 we didn't have a world championships because the world championships are going to be in Mexico and uh the earthquake happened like a few weeks before the world championships but we actually weren't going to go anyway because it was at altitude and the doctor just he, he it just wasn't going to make sense us going um so we didn't have any major in 2017 so it was quite a calm year and then 2018 I kind of knew this is European year this is the year of Dublin so I kind of had to put my head down and traveling as well it was only me and Nicole Turner who actually went to America for those world for that specific world series so we actually had nationals I think the week before then we had a camp and then we went straight over so it was quite a busy three weeks um and it was the whole point to doing that was to kind of tire us out so that we could race tired and learn how to race tired and um I think both of us kind of did a good job out there <laughs> Yeah, so for those of us who are admittedly two floaters, explain to us the events that you compete in. Um, so I my main event would be the 100 metre breaststroke. Um, so that is like not granny breaststroke, but normal breaststroke. Um, and then I do the 200 metre medley, which is 50 metres of each stroke. So you go out with the butterfly, you go backstroke, breaststroke, freestyle. Um, I think I'm quite strong at that because being a breaststroker you kind of have an advantage over everyone else because a lot of people don't can't do breaststroke it would be maybe their weakest stroke and then I kind of dabble in 100 meter butterfly and 100 meter backstroke too I dabble (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's because like when you're away at a major and it could be anything from seven days to ten days to you could be at a Paralympic Games for a month um, and you get bored like if your main event if one of your main events is the first day and the other one's the last day, you're flo- you're just not doing anything for six days. Floating around. You're floating yeah. around, yeah. <laughs> floating around in the Literally. swim lane. <laughs> <Just like us. laughs> so I kind of like, 
like to have another an extra event just to kind of keep competing and just keep myself a little bit entertained especially like in Rio um I could have finished competing on like the I think Rio was 10 days I could have finished competing on like the seventh day but the on the ninth day the 100 meter backstroke was on and I was like well I don't want my Paralympic Games to be over yet so <laughs> I want to swim in the 100 meter backstroke and what is your favorite to swim in the 100 meter backstroke okay yeah so I I could swim really really well in the 200 I am but still be upset because I haven't swam well in my breaststroke so my breaststroke is like close to my heart so it would have been the one that I was really good at when I was younger and the reason why I went to Beijing and the reason why um I'm kind of high up in the rankings is because of breaststroke excellent so what's your earliest memory of being in the pool um I learned to swim when I was quite young so I think I was in lessons maybe when I was about two like as soon as I could walk I was swimming um and I used to do my lessons with my brothers, my sister and my cousins. So every Friday we used to do the lessons in CRC in Clontarf. And then, yeah, that's kind of how it started. Can't really remember the phase when I was like, okay, now I do this and actually compete. And did you compete in other sports as a nipper or was it just swimming from the get-go? No, no, I did. um, I dabbled in some hip-hop, some dancing, yeah. (laughs) I actually competed in hip-hop until I was like, 11 that's I proper think. north side oh like aka hip-hop <laughs> <laughs> um and then i actually have trophies as well from it as well i loved it i can still do the worm like um and then i did uh a little bit of gaa um some speech and drama G- gaa for clontarf no oh. scully connell oh, okay yeah yeah, excellent. So, <laughs> what? Why rivalry there? Was it a tough decision to to put hip hop on the on the shelf and um, concentrate in swimming? It was because I like <laughs> I had moved up from like uh, when I first started actually doing like lane swimming and then joining a club and competing. And um, I started off doing like one session a week to two sessions a week, and then it slowly started to build. And I used to go, I used to go from school to hip hop on a Tuesday. I used to go to school to hip hop to swimming. And it was just not like it wasn't going to work. I was going to burn out eventually. And I kind of had to make the decision. And it was hard because I still I still love dancing now. So but not in coppers. No, not in coppers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't know. It was hard to do. And I mean, you know, for me, I play I play football and um, I, you know, went to England to play. And it was only when I was there that I realized that this could be become a real career choice. At what stage was that for you? Swimming? Um, I think it was when I qualified for Beijing. I was 12 when I actually qualified for Beijing and um, everyone was like, you need to be swimming more. Like I remember whenever we used to have camps at the weekend. At 12? Yeah. <laughs> whenever we used to have camps at the weekend um, with the Irish team, like we we might have a camp every like six weeks. I'd be like, oh, I don't have to swim on Friday because I have a, I have to swim on Sunday with the camp. And my coach is like, no, like you still have to swim on Oh, okay. Um, and that's when I kind of realized that it started to get serious. Um, and I, I actually remember I was swimming at a competition in UK school games, which was on in September time. So I had to swim throughout the whole of the summer. And I remember one of the older swimmers was like, was like he came back after his holiday or something. And he was like, have you been here the whole time? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, wow, that's dedication. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Okay, fine. <laughs> um, you've been competing since that Olympic Games when you were 12. You got into that when you were 12 and you were over there when you were 13, is it? Yeah, so 13 was Beijing Paralympics. Yeah. And, I mean, what's it like being just 13 years old and competing on such a big stage, an Olympic stage? It's so weird because it was my, it wasn't just my first Paralympics, it was my first major international meet. So I hadn't actually competed at European Championships or World Championships. Um, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I think in hindsight, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't, I wish I didn't go because when I actually came back from it, I found it really hard to motivate myself at competitions because nothing kind of lived up to it. And I didn't understand why things didn't live up because obviously it's like the biggest thing in the world at that stage. Um, but actually when I was over there, I was just treated like any other athlete would be. I wasn't um, looked down on because I was younger, treated any differently, which is ideal because uh, we're all, at the end of the day, we're all there for the same reason. And the, the slogan actually of the games was one world, one dream. So when I turned 18, I got that tattooed in Chinese on my back. <laughs> nice. And, you know, being so young, uh, what kind of support did you have? Um, well, obviously, my parents played such a big role up until, um, well, still today, but especially with the early mornings, because being a swimmer, I was up at 20 past four in the morning, maybe four times a week in the pool at five. And my, it was my parents getting up and driving me to training and feeding me and bringing. They must me to really school. love you. Like <laughs> they love you a lot. Well, like I'm, I'm repaying them now. Like they get to go, they get to basically travel the world, just supporting me. And, um, you know, when you're younger and your parents are embarrassing you because they're so supportive. But now when they, I'm out competing, they dress up in their green suits and I just let them. Like it's it's what they enjoy doing, and it kind of like they get so much attention as well that I get more attention. So it's it's a win-win. <laughs> and you've kind of mentioned your, your coach and stuff. Um, have you had the same coach the whole way through your career or have you changed or how has that level of support been? Um, no, so I started off um, doing my lessons and stuff in the CRC and then I moved to a club in Westwood in Clontarf and then that club just kind of uh, fell apart and I moved to... Uh, Erlingus Swim Club but I was in Erlingus for a year before I went to boarding school in England so I'd kind of like train with Erlingus whenever I was home and then I'd be in boarding school in England and then when I after the London 2012 Paralympics I came home and I kind of just knew I needed a change like I just needed I, I felt like I was just in the side lane not really doing what I needed to do um, and Dave Malone ha was the head coach of the NAC Swim Club and he was a Paralympian himself in the past. So his last Paralympic Games in Beijing was my first Paralympic Games. So if I was going to be training with anyone who knew anything about Paralympics, he was the the best one man to go to. And since 2013, um, we've just built such a good coach-athlete relationship. And I think that's the most important thing when it comes to being an elite athlete is being able to com communicate with your coach and not being afraid to say how you feel or what you think you need and that's kind of how we we communicate and it's working well amazing so you know being 13 and you know how was it being exposed to that much pressure like we were chatting previously about this and just to, to put it in comparison like at 13 I was trying to convince my parents I was mature enough for a Tamagotchi I think Emily you were <laughs> I wanted to get a Spice Girls tattoo like that was the extent of my ambition in life 
I had a Tamagotchi too. So. Um, I don't know. It's just, it was so weird because also back in 2008, the Paralympic Games wasn't as in the media as it is now. There wasn't as much coverage. Um, so I wasn't really in the media that much. I think I did. I don't even, I think the only interviews that I did when it came to Beijing was post-race and it was just some woman with the like a voice recorder thing um so i didn't really experience the whole the whole media craze that there is now and obviously there wasn't any social media back then there was like facebook was starting or something bebo. yeah bebo <laughs> um but you wouldn't you wouldn't um have someone constantly ringing you or stuff which is actually what was happening in the lead up to europeans i was having people ringing me constantly and i had to just like put my phone on mute and i have a new thing now if i don't recognize the number i'm not answering it because like it's always one. it's always a journalist or it's always a reporter just trying to be like oh will you come in and do this or really answer these questions i'm like I have an agent. <laughs> it's very accessible to find out that I have an agent. If you go on my Twitter, you'll see And she's that. very lovely. And she's very lovely. <laughs> she really and she's is. very good at saying no for me. And that's my issue as well. I'm really bad at saying no. So after uh, Rio, when I won the medal, I kind of started with Zine Sinead. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I told her that I basically wanted to help build the profile of Paralympics. But at the same time, I'm really bad at saying no. And so that's one thing that she's really good at is knowing when we is when enough is enough and especially leading up to competition time she doesn't even contact you to tell you that people have expressed interest she's just like no (laughs) you can you can talk to her after the competition helping with that kind of boundary setting is is really important and Sinead is somebody who's uh from the other side of that who's dealt with Sinead like dealing with her is just such pleasure like she's (laughs) she's very polite but very firm in how she's like no (laughs) um you know you where you stand with Sinead yeah completely um uh, but you were still you were 13 and you've you've done a couple of interviews uh Ellen where you spoke about um you know the anxiety and and feeling sick with anxiety and the quote that you gave was trying to hide the fact that you didn't have two arms and you now I suppose just for listeners um Ellen was born without uh part of your left arm below the elbow yeah. is that correct to say yeah. great so can you tell us a little bit about those experiences um so yeah like when I I never really noticed that I was different it was when I when everyone becomes a teenager, they become aware of their body and how they don't fit into society. And nobody fits into society because society is just this myth thing. Um, And obviously I realized how much different I was and how people kept staring at me. And it was just, it's not a nice feeling um, being like 12 year old kid with people staring at you. And so I, I, decided to hide like I'm wearing a heavy jumper a heavy coat now and this would be ideal for trying to hide the fact that I had no arm and the heavier the jumper the more um it looked like I had two hands and I like became a master at trying to perfect that and I think that anxiety came because there was nobody like me in the media so I think that's like I kind of have a platform now to put myself out there to try and educate people and even um I've had like mothers come up to me and be like oh my little girl was hiding her arm in her sleeve but now she doesn't do it anymore and like oh my god I the most heartbreaking thing ever was when um I I have a gym prosthetic that I get fixed in uh Kappa there's an auto box center in Kappa and uh, I was in there one day just getting my gym arm like fixed or whatever. And then um, the the girl who was fixing it, she was like, oh, there's this um woman here and she has like a newborn 
he she's only uh, I think she was maybe she wasn't newborn she was maybe like 18 months and she was like she has an arm like you and she's I was just wondering would you be okay meeting her and I was like yeah of course and then oh the baby was just so cute but then I put my arm out and she put her arm out and we both touched her arm and the little girl just started burst out laughing and then the mom burst out crying and I was like it's okay she just realizes that she's like similar to me and that we have something in common and that was only like an 18 month old kid it was so cute wow that's uh, pretty cool yeah so it's like things like that I like to do because like I obviously didn't have it and that's why I became so insecure about my body and um, so if I'm able to change it for somebody else then I, I'd love to do that you've you've come a long way since then you know to now you're at a stage where you know you've kind of accepted and you're proud of your lucky fin mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of people would kind of resonate with that kind of journey of self acceptance and can you tell us a bit about yours especially going through those teenage years um yeah so i i hid my arm from maybe 11 up until i was 19 and it's so bizarre because like obviously the more I swam and the more media coverage that Paralympics was getting, the more I was in the media. So a lot of people knew that I had no arm, but I just didn't want people to know that I had one arm. And it was when I was in the pool and I was swimming, I felt completely free and I felt able to be myself and completely comfortable with my body. But then when I was even in school, I'd always have a coat on and I'd always be hiding my arm. And it just was horrible. I like whenever someone like kind of looked at me differently I'd know that they knew and like I'd just get in a bead of sweat and I'd panic and I'd want to leave and things like that and I just never felt like good enough I didn't feel like I could be loved and things like that and then on the first day of college I was like right this is ridiculous if I can swim and be comfortable in my own body in just a swimsuit then I can just put my arm out there and it was a scary thing to do going into college with my sleeve rolled up and acting like I was confident when I was really dying inside um, but I kind of realised that all the demons that I've made up were all in my head and yes obviously people are going to look but that's just because they're curious and it's something that they've never seen before and they look and then they forget it and, th- and then they move on like even my friends now are always like oh I keep forgetting that you've one arm <laughs> well it's there <laughs> or, and now I, I love taking advantage of how uncomfortable disabilities make people feel because like it some people like panic because they've never seen someone like that or they they don't know someone with a disability so they don't know how to interact with someone with a disability and it's kind of like a big elephant in the room so whenever I get the chance I just kind of make one-handed jokes and people are like what and they die a little and then they laugh and then it's kind of out there and they're more comfortable making them like even my boyfriend now um I don't think he knew any disabled people before we were together but now we'll walk past like a guy in a wheelchair and like I one of my best friends is in a wheelchair and he'll be like oh there's Alva's boyfriend I'm like, so, like <laughs> you can't say these things like or like an older woman in a wheelchair and he's like there's Alva in a few years like, Stop. <laughs> poor like, Alva if she it. listens yeah. in <laughs> oh no she gets abused all the time I tell you <laughs> that's it's funny that you you say that like you know you were so you were confident in a swimsuit on a global stage um but you were still trying to come to accept this bit of yourself Mm -hmm. um and you went to college to study culinary entrepreneurship yeah like does that does those two things kind of tie in together like does it give you an insight into um how to kind of fuel yourself better for your exploits in the pool 
uh, uh, yeah, I suppose, how does that kind of, w- was that chosen with that, that in mind? No, it was chosen with the I'm a disabled, stubborn person and I don't want to be stuck at a desk my whole life mind. Um, <laughs> and I kind of, <laughs> it was kind of like, just because I have one arm doesn't mean I'm not going to do something like this. And I actually wanted to go, when I was doing my leaving state, I wanted to go into communications because I wanted to go into the media. And I obviously didn't get the points that I needed. So I was devastated and decided to do something that I'd enjoy. Um, and I really enjoyed baking and stuff. So I was like, oh, this is a, sounds like a cool course. So I'll do this. And on the first on the first cooking class, so I was still like, it was still the first week of college and I was still in the midst of like, I have one arm in <laughs> announcing it to the world. And um, we had to wear our chef's uniform which had long sleeves and the chef was doing a demonstration of how to use knives safely and how to pass knives safely and he was like uh you over there and he like passed me the knife and obviously I passed him back the wrong way and then afterwards in the class he was like I only realized after I gave you the knife that you had one arm and I felt completely mortified I'm so sorry (laughs) it's fine it's fine kind of made more people aware of it too so Fine. I, I studied uh, culinary arts in ah, DIT and similar story didn't get enough points to do what I wanted to do and ended up just picking culinary arts um, so I didn't have to get a job um, but I was left handed um, so you know you're taught everything with your right hand so yeah. like it's so difficult to you know transfer yeah. Yeah. Um, and especially being in the kitchen and being in that environment it's so intense so yeah, yeah. and then like I sometimes do to use it to my advantage like if there's things I don't want to do because obviously when you're when you when you make your stuff in class and you have to obviously clean up and they'll be like who's going to sweep the floor and I'm like well I can't I have one arm and the lads are like oh it's fine I'll do it I'll, I'll do it I'm like, thanks <laughs> that's brilliant well, you just outed yourself here uh, everyone knows like but they still get so uncomfortable that they're just yes yes they also can't say anything to you I know yeah because like yeah, you know, I'm disabled. Like, yeah. I don't know. What are you going to do about it? You've, uh, <laughs> we've, we're major fans of your Instagram. So oh, just upfront about that. Uh, I will talk to you about your tutorial on how to make the perfect hot chocolate later. <laughs> we'll do that off air. Um, but you have done a load of kind of Instagram videos of you in the gym, you doing yoga and stuff, mm-hmm. and you've already mentioned your prosthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that technology has played a role in kind of supporting your? trajectory your performative trajectory and you know was that kind of technology available for you if you had been of age in Beijing so you now have these these new technologies and stuff has that really helped or not so much um I don't think it really makes that much of a difference in terms of performance I think in the pool because obviously in the gym there's mirrors so you can see what you're doing anyway. Um, in the pool, my coach would record things and show me afterwards. We do get race analysis after we compete as well to see like where we went wrong or if we had done things a little bit differently. So I think definitely being able to watch yourself swim and being able to recognize where you're put, like the wrong placement of your hand or something if you needed a higher catch. Um, like that definitely has made such a difference but I think technology just for me specifically is just a way of telling my story and I think because as I said I wanted to go into the media and I've had so many different opportunities to kind of get into the media not like get into the media but deal with the media and I'm a Sky Sports scholar and 
I've only been that for it's a three year program and I've only been that for I think it's a year and a half now so far um, and I've just learned so much about the importance of telling your own story and I think that's what I'm trying to do now it's so cringy the first video I put up of me talking to myself I was like oh god I'm one of these people and then afterwards my friend were like it, you're actually like I, I wanted to listen to what you said so you weren't just talking like absolute nonsense like you actually were quite good and you were quite Blunt to the point and then the video was over, so it was fine. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely love them. <laughs> oh, them thank coming. you. <laughs> we'll put one off of this now. <gasps> Excellent. So here at Fair Game HQ, we have some strong views on uses of prefix like ladies football, women's sport. Is it the same for you when you're described as a para-athlete? Would you just prefer to be called athlete or are you fine with that? Um, I'm fine with being called a para-athlete because... It, it is what I am. I'm not an Olympian. I don't have the Olympic rings tattooed. Um, but I train in the Institute of Sport where all the other um, carded athletes train. And we're all just seen as one. Mm-hmm. And that's like, if someone were to call me a para-athlete, I wouldn't think anything of it. But okay. if like another athlete was to call me a para-athlete, I'd be like, why are you calling me a para-athlete? Like we train in the same gym. Like what are you doing? Um, but like, Eat to, eat, even to distinguish between like me and a swim Ireland swimmer like when because we get we get um Wednesdays and Fridays we get breakfast in the Institute of Sport after before training and uh, I'm quite friendly with the chef well he's not really a chef but he is our chef and uh, I'd be like oh are the swimmers in and he's like why do you call them the swimmers and I was, he was like you are a swimmer and I was like yeah but we're different and he was like all right okay um, so I would it's actually call myself a para swimmer just to differentiate, yeah. Okay, it's interesting, yeah. And you've you've kind of mentioned training in the, the National Aquatic Centre and uh, the NTC. And I mean, look, it's really popular right now for politicians and governing bodies to pump money into women's sports and that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of see that reflected in the supports and the resources made available to you? Um, I see the like the money being put into the Institute of Sport because it is um in the past I don't know when they actually put the gym in but it used to be a tiny little gym and now it's like a world class facility and it's so good but I think it'd be cool if they pumped more money into Paralympic sport um, we we probably could do with it and um, we we could we don't have our own high performance center so we're we're like a sport winning medals at Paralympic Games and we don't have our own high performance center which isn't great um it's not going to happen in my sporting career I don't think but down the road I think if they're serious about winning medals and if they actually are serious about Paralympic athletes being elite athletes they need to develop a, a high performance center for Paralympic athletes amazing and do, like do you think that's really far off? Would it be something that you'd like to get involved in kind of when you finish swimming? Um, I think when I finish swimming, I might. I don't know. I, I like because in the past, I'd always be like, oh, when I'm done with sport, I'm done. Um, but, you know, it's it's made me who I am. And I think it's important to give back. And yeah, I'd love to be part of kind of building the high performance center if there was one to come um, and be part of that legacy. And I think that's what we were kind of hoping Dublin would be, would be to help build a legacy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. And how is it for athletes from other countries? With their high performance, performance yeah. Yeah, um, well, just the British specifically, they have 
um, in Manchester, there's a, a 50 meter pool, but then underneath the 50 meter pool, you go downstairs and the British para swimmers have their own 50 meter pool that's only accessible to them. Um, they have spent like this. We don't need to go to these extremes because they've spent something like 250,000 euro on a diving block. Like we don't need that. <laughs> um, but it's just they have their own space. They have a pool that is accessible to them at all times and they have their own kind of um, pre pool area like they have their own space and I think that's something that Paralympic sport could do with yeah okay that's um that's that's really deadly insight to be honest um but kind of taking it back to the Olympics Mm. um London 2012 was for the viewers and the wider audience the first time that the Paralympic Games were given a similar platform and a similar level of attention um than its older Olympic sibling what was that like for you as a competitor um I think it was so bizarre how different the Beijing games were compared to London because Beijing, it was in a foreign land. It was somewhere I'd never been before and um, different language barrier and just not that much coverage and not that many Irish people there. And then London 2012, you had like everyone knew about it. It was in all the papers you'd see and maybe even your friends were able to come over and watch. So it was just... um it was a really cool experience that they were able to do that and especially I think Channel 4 told the story of Paralympics so well that people started to pay attention to it and that definitely helped in the lead up to Rio as well because they they started to release all their promo videos so early on and people knew what it was and started to get excited about it and that's that's what is the goal like there's no point competing spending four years of your life or even longer training for an event that for one you mightn't even qualify for and you mightn't even make a final and if you're lucky enough to uh, win a medal like it on the day it is luck everyone's training as hard as possible to win that gold medal Um, and it's just on the day who got lucky who wanted it the most and you want the support around you you want to kind of feel, feel validated for what you've done and it's really exciting that that's what's been happening in the past two games. Yeah, so that was your second time competing at that? Yeah, London 20. Yeah, and I suppose you were still finding your feet, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, what were your goals going into that? Um, So I nearly didn't even go to London 2012. I went on a wild card um, and I found out, I think, two months or a month before the Games that I was actually going. Um, And I think that was kind of the point where I realised I've... I was trying so long to kind of balance having a life with being a swimmer and you can't do that. (laughs) You really have to, to be an elite athlete, you really have to be a 24-7 athlete and not just a whenever training is on, you're an athlete. Um, So I think London 2012 and competing there made me realise what I needed to do. Um, And I'd learned so much over the past four years that I had all the tools, I just needed to apply what I knew in training and outside of training and that's kind of what I did and in 2013 I won my first international medals at world championships so I knew yeah. what I was capable of yeah mm. and so being a wild card going into that competition did that do you feel that add to the pressure or were you just going in thinking we'll see what happens um I had goals because so with Paralympic sport um, they have a classification system mm-hmm. so it's kind of like boxing you're put into different categories based on your physical ability and um, so 
I was a breaststroker, but a few a year previous, I had been reclassified up, and they said it was because I had grown, which I hadn't because I've been put down now. And um, but I was competing in the higher classification, and that really was a struggle for me because I watched the SB8, which I am, which is what I am now. I watched the SB8 breaststroke um final, and the time that won a bronze medal. Uh, they won. They won a bronze medal. And I think one twenty two five. And in the heat of my uh, race, I went to one twenty two nine, and that was in the morning swim. And usually you swim faster in the evening. So I was a bit, I was a bit annoyed and frustrated at that. Um. So that was another reason why it wasn't the games of my dreams. And I think mm. in twenty thirteen, when I finally got put back down um to an SB eight, I was like, right, this is my chance. So you swim faster in the evening. I think that's my problem. I swim in the morning. <laughs> I, I, I surf, um, but oh, I, I don't I don't I swim. Learn how to surf. Yeah, but I can't swim at all. I'm not I'm not confident at all in the water. So I just think I just don't think I'll be able to swim or surf because of the like physical strength that you need to be able to pull yourself up. I like I have the physical strength. I just don't think I have the balance <laughs> to be able to pull myself up onto the board. Although I have seen. Have you seen Soul Surfer? No, it's like a surf movie about um Bethany Hamilton, who uh, she's like a pro surfer, but she got her arm bitten off by a shark ah. and she's still surfing today. And it's all about how she still surfs with one arm. So I kind of just feel like I have no excuse. You're oh. still young enough to take up another sport. <laughs> also, when you retire, can we do like a live video thing where we all go surfing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> between John and her experience and you with an Olympic swimmer, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Maybe you could end up being the best surfer. Oh my God, watch. God, that would be a really low bar for you both. <laughs> Listen, in, in 2016, you had, you and your fellow Irish athletes had the entire country buzzing we were checking your twitter we were following the instagrams we were totally creeping out on the antics <laughs> of irish athletes in rio um and on your third this was your third olympic attempt and you finally claimed your spot on the podium you bought this brought home a brilliant bronze medal uh, for the 100 meter breaststroke and you also swam lifetime bests if i'm not wrong in uh, the 100 meter breaststroke the butterfly finals um, I swam PBs in the butterfly and the backstroke. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So the 200 IM was my first event and a year previous at World Champs I'd won a bronze medal in that. Um, and then it was my first event in Rio and I went out way too fast, completely bombed it and couldn't bring it home. And I came, I didn't even make the final and it was just such a horrible, horrible experience. But I think leading up to the Paralympics, I, in my head, I was like, this is my third games. I was saying stupid things to myself. I was like, if I can't win a medal here, I can't really validate myself as a Paralympic athlete. So I think it, it's still bits of kind of the negative maybe experiences I had with my arm the anxiety and stuff I think was still still bits of it there but it was just kind of surfacing differently um so I completely bombed my 200 IM which was probably maybe a good thing that happened because I kind of got it all out in that moment and then uh two days later I had my brush choke and in the heats I was like right if I can swim a good heat I'll be fine for the final and I won the heat so I was like right okay it's it's fine I'll relax I'm just gonna swim the race and enjoy it and we'll see I'm gonna drive obviously I'm gonna drive it home but I just kind of want to enjoy it and see what happens and that's what what happened on bronze and what was the like award ceremony like what was it like when you came home did you know that there was such a buzz going on around you when you were out there 
Um, not really. It's just uh, the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games is such a weird place. It's like this bubble that you live in for a month of your life and you've spent four years of your life training for this bubble and when you're there like everyone is so happy or sad and people are winning medals or not winning medals and because you got a little mascot as well and my mascot was like peeking out of my bag after the medal ceremony and strangers were coming up being like oh congratulations because they knew if you had the mascot you'd won a medal and so that was really really nice and that's something that I'd never experienced before and then um we weren't allowed on we kind of had a a social media blockout while we were competing so I actually didn't know what was going on until after I'd finished racing finally and I got like all these messages and it's so bad because you you can't even reply to all of them um, because there were so many and then actually when we came home I think the flight was like from like leaving Brazil to finally being in my house in Clontarf it was like 20 22 hours or 24 hours and my dad was like oh by the way we're going to a homecoming in Clontarf Rugby Club and I was just like what like I don't want to do that <laughs> I don't want to go at all and it was so hard like obviously it was lovely to see the people come and support and I was very grateful for their support while I was there but I was like it's the day I'm home I'm tired <laughs> I want to sleep and um is it Mick Clossy? Is that how you pronounce his name? He was the marathon runner who was in the Olympics and he'd been home three weeks and they were doing the homecoming for him as well. And I was like, you've been home three weeks. I've been home an hour. Um, <laughs> but I kind of just had to, had to let it go and enjoy myself and kind of be there for everyone who had been there for me while I was competing. Excellent. So, you know, at the moment you're preparing for Tokyo 2020. Yeah, I'm actually preparing for world championships first, which are in the summer and they're due to be in Malaysia. Uh, I don't know. That might change because there's some politics going on. Um, And then, yeah, Tokyo 2020. And what's kind of the training cycle for that? Um, At the moment, it's hard training. Uh, We have we'll have one competition this year other than Worlds that we'll target so that we qualify for Worlds. Um, So we'll taper down for that one. Um, That for me is going to be British champs in Glasgow at the end of April. So I'm aiming to swim fast there. And then uh, World Champs will be the qualifier for Tokyo. So basically at a World Championships, if you come first or second, you get an automatic slot for your country. Um, So that's kind of the goal to place first or second and kind of have that peace of mind knowing that um, leading into Tokyo I can just focus on training and focus on myself and then I finished college uh, this year as well so I'll have like a whole year just being a full-time athlete which is either a good thing or yeah. a bad thing I don't know we'll find out <laughs> we'll find out in September 2020 <laughs> and on that note <laughs> listen we we just want to say um, thank you so much for coming in to join us in Fair Game HQ thanks for giving us your time and sharing your story and your insights uh, and for the record you absolutely have the most deadly story Um <laughs> You can follow Ellen on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at Keen underscore Ellen. Thank you. And you can follow us on Twitter too, Fair Game, at, sorry, at Fair Game Cast. There's so much live action involving Irish sports women to look forward to in the coming months. And that's where we provide you with all the necessary information to keep you in the loop and maybe even out onto the sidelines. And finally, just a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on. You'll find us on iTunes, Android, Stitcher and Spotify. That way you'll get the next one delivered directly to your advice. That's all for this episode. We'll chat to you again soon.
HPN, the Headstuff Podcast Network. See headstuff.org for more details.